Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy, Andrew Berkshire. Andrew, what's going on, man? Not much, man. Just, you know, enjoying the summer weather. Enjoying the summer weather. Um, yeah, me too. You know what else I'm enjoying? These uh, these mailbag questions that we got from our from our from our listeners. Yeah, I uh, I took a look through them. It looks like you guys have got some uh, intelligent uh, listeners, as to be expected with the intelligence level of the hockey PDO cast. Mm. I'm looking forward to it as well. You don't have to be buttering them up, man. They're they've already downloaded. They're already listening. It's fine. You can say anything you want about them, and they'll still keep coming back. <laughs> yeah, for you, but you know, I got to get them on my side too. It's true. It's true. No, the, the listeners are great. Are great, and uh, this summer they've really been coming through with these mailbag questions. And um, yeah, let's start with what I thought was kind of the most interesting um, one in terms of just a thought exercise, and and it's Mike Petty, and he asks. What's your move for what the Flyers' next step should be? They have a loaded prospect defense core that won't be ready in time as their top forwards enter the decline phase. And I think that's a an interesting uh, way to look at it because there definitely is a bit of a mismatch in terms of, um, as he alluded to, that loaded uh, blue line that they've drafted and signed over the past few years that's you know on its way up, but then the forwards are showing some worrisome signs of decline. Um, obviously, you've got guys like Travis Konechny and stuff coming up as well up front, but there is that sort of uh, age gap there. Like if you were running the Flyers, what what would your goals be for both this coming season and how you'd act moving forward to set them up? Yeah, I found like this question was pretty good because not a lot of people are talking about what's going on with the Flyers. Uh, it seems like they've kind of been forgotten after being a perennial like mid-tier contender for, you know, I, I would say most of our lives pretty mm-hmm. much. Uh, it's a tough one for them because I think they're in a situation right now where, you know, like if those defensemen were ready right now, they would probably want to compete for a Stanley Cup, but it's clearly a couple years away from, you know, prime time. I think they've got to look at moving out a couple guys at forward and, you know, investing in the future. Uh, I think at forward, their future is probably, or at least should be built around Sean Couturier. Uh, For whatever reason, nobody really pays much attention to Couturier either. Uh, 
maybe his offensive numbers aren't as spectacular as people think, but you know, he doesn't get the chances to produce that some other young stars do. His uh, possession numbers are always good, uh, bordering on a phenomenal. He's been, you know, the star that, uh, the straw that uh, stirs the drink for the Flyers at even strength for a couple of years now. I think they've got to build around him. And I think part of the tough decision going forward is they might have to move on from Claude Giroux. And I think that that, as much as, you know, in, in terms of identity, that might be a tough decision for them. And, you know, it's a big contract to move. But he is clearly not the player that he used to be. And, you know, maybe that's part of the, the hip injury that he has been suffering through the last couple of years. But you look at, you know, the gap between him and Jake Voracek and those two years of age seem to be pretty heavy. And, like, I wouldn't, I don't think I'd move Jake Voracek. I think that he's a guy that, you know, maybe he'll be 32 or something when they're in their prime. I think that he's a veteran guy that can really help them at that point. He probably won't be too bad, even though he's expensive. Hmm. But Giroux, I'm not confident in three, four years from now. Yeah, the Giroux thing is a problem. Uh, I think he's, I believe he's 29 years old and he has mm-hmm. five years and $41 million left on his deal, which um, I don't I, I, I'd be very curious to see what the trade market would even be like. I, I feel like coming off of the year he just had, it's probably non-existent at that price. Um, but, you know, he does carry some, some name cachet and name value and he is capable of still being um, an immensely useful player, at least on the power play, which has value. But I'm just—he definitely seems like he's on the downswing. I mean, the team as a whole last year at five on five was alarmingly bad. Um, yeah, you know, Sean Couturier played 66 games and he led the team in five on five points, and he only had 27 of them. And you know, you go on down the line, and it's especially that uh, Giroux. I mean, having 18 five on five points and like. 1100 minutes at five on five is is a bit mind-blowing and i thought that um you know ryan stimson and and Corey schneider have done some great work in terms of highlighting some of the flaws the flyers had last year five on five in terms of it seemed like i don't know if this was by design by dave hackstall or, or what but they most of their offense and the offensive zone centered around getting the puck up to the point and just bombing shots from from deep and it clearly wasn't working, and I, I wonder if maybe if they go back to the drawing board and, and reassess that, and maybe try to create some better opportunities, and maybe you know go about attacking in a different way. Maybe that could rejuvenate some of these guys a little bit. But yeah, the it was completely night and day between how, how effective their power play was and how effective they were at even strength. Yeah, they're a really weird team, and you know, like they've got you know if they were in a position to compete for a Stanley Cup, they're kind of that sort of forward group that you like in a lot of ways. And they have a lot of middle six guys who are capable of stepping up in short term. But as you, as you look down the lineup, they've got a lot of guys who are in that like 28 to 30 something range who are making a fair amount of cash, mm-hmm. like uh, uh, Valtteri Filpola, Yori uh, Laterra, Couturier is not, he's 24, but uh, Wayne Simmons, as much as I love Wayne Simmons, Matt Reed, Dale Weiss, Dale Weiss has guys, three more years. Dale Weiss has three more years on his contract, and he's making over two million. Like he's making over two and a quarter. So and like that's that's per season. Yeah, that's <laughs> as Bob McKenzie would say. <laughs> and you know, like people think I'm a Dale Weiss hater because I was always very harsh on him in Montreal. But he's a he's a guy who has speed and a shot and not much else. Yeah. Uh, if you don't allow him to cheat uh, out of the defensive zone like crazy, which 
I don't think the Flyers allowed him to do as much last year. He's not going to contribute much. He's not a possession driver. He's not a defensive player. Uh, he doesn't create offense on his own. He kind of just uh, finishes plays that are made off, made for him. He, he's a fourth line guy, and he's getting paid like a third liner. It's it's not an ideal situation. And even you know Matt Reed's only signed for one more year, but he's thirty one, three point six two five million. It's just wasted space for a lot of these guys. That you know Matt Reed used to be really really good, and then he fell off the cliff, and he doesn't seem to really be able to capture what he used to have. Uh, he kind of goes up and down every season. Yeah. Is he really better than Travis Konechny? I highly doubt it. Uh, I guess Nolan Patrick will infuse some youth into that lineup, so we'll see how that works out. But I, I don't think Patrick is supposed to be considered like an elite offensive guy, right? He's more of a a, a balanced player, a two-way guy. Yeah, I think he'll be a good all-around player. I mean, the, the, the one... Well, the good okay. The saving grace here for the Flyers is that I do believe they've drafted pretty well over the past few years, yeah, and they, uh, have. they have accumulated some young talent. I mean, most of it is on the blue line, but it, there is this next wave of young players for for fans of the team to get excited about. Um, yeah, maybe the next year or two will be sort of that weird transition phase where they move on from some of these guys and and look ahead to that to that next next wave of flyers talent that's going to lead this team back to the playoffs but i don't know i mean they're they're going to be exciting to watch at least i mean they're they're entertaining i it's good that i mean they're only playing 5.2 million for Elliot and Neuberth combined next season which i'm always a big fan of uh of getting goalies on the cheap like that i i they're going to be hard pressed in that division to make a run just because there's like five other teams you conceivably see being ahead of them in the standings but um, they could be they could be surprisingly kind of feisty and competitive next season if some of these young guys come up and start producing right away. Yeah, I totally agree. And you know, something I'm just looking at now because I've got their cat friendly page open mm-hmm. because, of course, you have to when you're talking about a team, right? Yep. Uh, they've only got five defensemen signed for next year, eh? Unless another guy is breaking in from the minors. I guess maybe Samuel Sam Moran, but I thought that he was a guy who hasn't really filled out the way that they wanted him to. Yeah, they're. I mean, they've got a few of those guys. Whether it's a, a Travis Sanheim or a, or a Robert Hag. Mm. Um, yeah, I think they're. I think after Dills Auto walked, I think they're kind of hoping that one of those young guys is going to be able to step up. Um, I guess worst case, they'll be able to to pluck some veteran off for cheap. You know, as they get closer to the season. But I'd like to see. Uh, now that Ivan Provorov has gone through his uh, mandatory one year of hazing, uh, playing next to Andrew McDonald full time, <laughs> I'd like to see uh, I'd like to see him separated from him and get to spread his wings. Uh, but uh, considering, as you mentioned, that they only have five guys signed, it seems like uh, we're in for at least one more season of heavy, heavy Andrew McDonald usage. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, they're such a weird team because, like, it seems like the Flyers for throughout the time that the cap has been around have always had no cap space you know like they've they've always spent over the cap and had some guys on like LTIR whether it was like Darian Hatcher Mike Rathje Chris Pronger they've always got somebody and now they've actually got really nothing on LTIR the only guys that they've got that they're paying that aren't on the roster are RJ Umberger for one more year 1.5 and Ilya Brzezgalov forever but he was a compliance buyout so they're not paying him anything on the cap so like they're in a situation where they do have a bit more flexibility, but they actually don't have much cap space. Only three point three seven million uh, this year. So it, it's a 
that's not a lot of cap space for a team that's probably not going to be in the playoffs. And, you know, maybe this people can are free to disagree with me, but I don't think they're necessarily going to even be close to the playoffs this next year. I don't think that they're that competitive. I think they're probably in like a 11th, 12th range more than 9th, 10th. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think I think that's fair. Um, but I, the way they're set up, I mean, I guess it, it would be kind of disappointing considering how many of those forwards, as you mentioned, are in their late twenties. Uh, you'd like to squeeze some some you know competitive uh, opportunities out of that and maybe go for the playoffs. But it seems like they are looking ahead to the future, and it, it is weird that they have so much money tied up when they're not that good. But I still think Ron Hextall's done a really good job with his team. I mean, he he took over a pretty unfavorable situation and has accumulated yeah. young talent. So I, I, I feel like a large majority of the moves they've made in the past few years, I've been in, uh, in favor of and actually agreed with completely. So I can't say that for a lot of GMs in this league. So I think Ron Hextall is at least taking him on the right path. Yeah, I agree. They're, they're a team that like the immediate future isn't necessarily good, but they have a bright long-term future. Yeah, I'll go with that. Perfect. Um, okay, let's uh, let's let's move on. Uh, Magnus Simonson asks, "How good is Matt Murray? Is the fourth rank on the NHL Network the truth?" I got a few questions about this NHL Network uh, goalie ranking list, and I didn't even, I haven't even seen it. I haven't looked at it, but I'm I'm assuming that it's uh, wild and very out there. Um, I saw that they had John Quick as third best, so obviously it's oh, well, so he's not Matt Murray. rational. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, we're not going to waste time on discussing whether John Quick is the third best goalie, but I think that <laughs> the Matt Murray one is interesting because obviously um, the sample we've seen from him in the NHL so far has been very good, and he's really succeeded at every level so far. Um, I think I know how you're going to answer this one, but. I'll let, I'll let you go. I'll, I'll let you take a crack at it first. Do you think that Matt Murray is the fourth best goalie? And if not, or you know, where do you think that he stacks up against the, the league's other best guys? I think Matt Murray is a very good goalie, but fourth best is a little premature. Uh, you know, he's played sixty-two regular season games so far, another thirty-two in the playoffs. His numbers are great. But again, he's playing behind the Pittsburgh Penguins. There's he's not the only reason they've won two Stanley Cups in a row. Hmm. I'm I'm skeptical that he is as good as his numbers show, uh, simply because of his age. He hasn't really had to battle any adversity outside of injuries yet. So we'll see how he deals with that if the Penguins ever take a step down. I, I think the sample's just a little too small. You know, we're we're talking about essentially ninety-four NHL games. He's probably going to be good, but right now I would put him, you know, like a hair out of the top 10 maybe, or maybe just in the top 10 in that range. I don't think I've seen enough from him to bump him over guys who've been around and shown that they're great for a lot longer. Yeah, I guess um, it's kind of tough to answer this question because it's like, is you could make the argument that he's the fourth most valuable goalie just based oh, on sure. his age and contract. Um, but in terms of like, if you were just heading into next season, uh, there's obviously a handful of guys you'd have ahead of them. Like, would you, even though they, they still had, um, they had down seasons, you know, at least compared to their, uh, relatively high career norms, like you'd still have to take Lundquist and Schneider ahead of him just for next season. Right. 
Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, people got on Schneider a little bit last season that he wasn't, you know, as great as uh, previous seasons. But man, the Devils were such a mess. Hmm. Like I, his numbers that he's been able to put up with the Devils so far is mind-bendingly brilliant. You know, like it's incredible what he's been able to do there. So he's a guy that. You know, for a while, I think when he was like a uh, backup in Vancouver, people overrated him a little bit because he wasn't getting those marquee matchups that Luongo was. But he's become a very great goaltender, top five for sure. And yeah, I'd have to put him ahead. One season doesn't tell me much. You know, we, we've seen Sergei Bobrovsky struggle for a season and then come back and win a Vesna. So it's kind of the same thing with Matt Murray, right? Like, we're, you can't just judge on one season. You need probably three or four for a goalie to really know what they're about. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it obviously is encouraging that um, he was a standout at the OHL level and the AHL before this. I always like to see that from my goalies. I know that sometimes um, performance in that, at that position in major junior can be very unpredictable. I'm unpredictable and volatile and it's a completely different game, but whenever you have this sustained track record of success that always is is encouraging and, and a good sign moving forward. I'm, yeah, we'll see this year. I feel like um, considering that Anti Nami is the only thing behind him, we could see a, a pretty heavy dose of Matt Murray this season for the Penguins, and I think that's going to be a good barometer for for how good he actually is. Yeah, for sure. Once he's forced to deal with a, a full seasons full season of ups and downs, uh, if he can stay healthy. You know, it, it'll be a totally different thing, and we'll see how Chris Letang plays now at uh, 30 years old after all those injuries. I'm not exactly worried about him, but it'll be interesting to see how he recovers this time. Yeah, I think the Penguins will be fine. They've had they have a few oh, guys yeah. I've heard of. Well, they did just win the Stanley Cup without their best defenseman, so That's true. I, I'm guessing they'll be okay this year. Mm. Um, okay, friend of the podcast, Chris Watkins uh, has a couple questions here, and uh, I. You know, he's being very selfish, taking up a lot of our time, but a few of them are, are really interesting, so we'll, we'll try to get to them. Uh, he asked first, uh, who's on the GM hot seat right now? Who's on the GM hot seat? Mm. That's a tough one. I feel like you you would assume that Joe Sackick is, considering the Avalanche tried to hire Kyle Dubas behind his back. You know, like, but then again, he hasn't been there very long, so maybe that was just a shot in the dark and after it didn't work they're they're good with sacking i don't i don't know uh it, it's hard to figure out cuz like it seems like for the most part as teams are right now everyone knows who they are right in the nhl does that sound right it you does know what i mean it does there, there there's a very clear separation between the uh the, the haves con- and haves not yeah yeah the contenders and the teams that are are going to be bad this year but it's kind of like by their own doing and they understand that it's it's part of the process it's not like there's uh this handful of teams that are really actively trying to compete and just aren't capable because they're putting together an inferior product like there definitely is that delineation between those between those two objectives yeah and i feel like also at this point in the summer you know everyone who was going to be fired this year has already been fired so we're kind of in in a refresh situation so like in December, we'll probably know a little bit more of who's on the hot seat. Uh, I mean, based on some of the things that I've heard, if the Montreal Canadiens don't do really, really well this season, we're talking like Stanley Cup final appearance, uh, 
Mark Bergevin may be on the hot seat. But again, this is the kind of thing that, you know, you hear in Montreal every year anyway, because it's Montreal. So maybe it's not true, but it does make logical sense based on the drastic changes that he's made to the roster year over year. That if, you know, these major changes don't result in something good after six years on the job, he might be on the hot seat. But as of right now, the second, I wouldn't put him there because we just don't know how that team's going to perform this year. I have, two, I have two for you. Um, Kevin Sheveldayoff. Ooh, good one. Um, because I do, I think they, you know, obviously um, being in Winnipeg, they're, they're, they're sort of progressively working their way up. Um, but it's six years now and uh, zero playoff wins, one playoff appearance during that time. And I like the team that they've built and, and they have a good, a lot of, um, good young exciting players but eventually they kind of have to put that together and actually have someone to show for it and i guess we'll see this year i mean the goaltending has been what's really done them in in years past and now they have that steve mason uh connor Halliboy combo which i think there's reason to believe could be pretty effective and if they can't uh really make a run this year and make some noise and, and potentially get a playoff spot then i feel like uh it's time to start asking questions about whether there needs to be some some sort of change there rather than just kind of bringing everything back from, from from one year to the next yeah they need to up the aggression a little bit in in winnipeg they need to find a way to drastically improve their team instead of just you know hoping that their guys that they draft fit in uh, they've done a great job drafting they've got like you said especially at the top end of their forward group mm. like that's a fantastic top end you know, like maybe one of the best first lines in the league, but they, they've got to find a way to fill out the rest of that roster. And it seems like they're just a little bit too patient. And you look at guys like Blake Wheeler, who is fantastic and has been for years. And you're kind of without having any success, you're wasting a guy that's that good. And it kind of sucks to watch. I think you're right that uh, they need something to change there. But my only wonder with Winnipeg is it seems like they're so absurdly loyal to shovel day off that I can't like imagine him ever getting fired. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think he's, I mean, I didn't love their summer this year. I feel like, uh, making their Dmitry Kulikov, their priority was a bizarre choice, but for the most part, I, I just kind of like with Ron Hextall, uh, maybe the results haven't been there yet, but I, I think he's done a pretty good job of assembling this team. So I'd like to think yeah. that it'll eventually work out for them and the process will be rewarded. But I guess, uh, we'll see this season. Uh, another guy, is um what about Garth Snow? Especially mm. uh if John Tavares walks, then I feel like he could be in some trouble. Yeah, that that's a good one. Yeah. If John Tavares doesn't sign and you know we're at trade deadline and they're out of the playoffs, it might be it might be time to say goodbye to Snow. I mean, is he with the longest tenured GM outside of Ken Holland now? Because he's been around for a long time. He's fourth. I'm actually looking at it right now. I'm glad you asked. Um, yeah, Poyle and Holland are from 97, right, which is pretty wild. Um, that is crazy. And then Doug Wilson, 2003, and then Garth Snow, 2006. So, yeah, wow. he's, been, he's been there for uh, for quite a while, over a decade now, which is which time flies. Yeah, 11 years, and, you know, I think they've won one playoff round in that time. That's... yeah. You know, I he's he's a guy I find every couple of years I'm like, oh, Garth Snow must be like really smart and with it, and then like two years later I'm like, what is this guy doing? And it seems to go back and forth, and uh, he's just a guy that I can't quite figure out. I don't know if maybe it was problems with uh, Charles Wong 
interfering. And, you know, we know that's why that Rick DiPietro got that insane contract. But it seems like there's never a clear direction in Long Island. And I think that's kind of the same problem that I have with Montreal, right? Is like, it seems like every summer or every two summers, there's like a reset button and they, they aren't willing to stick with a plan. Hmm. And, you know, maybe sometimes that's a good thing when the plans aren't good, but when the plans do look good and you don't get the immediate success that you want, and then you just flip on it immediately, it's, you know, it's not good, stable management. And I feel like, Garcinot's got to stick with his guns a little bit more for a little longer. Otherwise, you're just stuck in this perpetual refresh mode for 11 years, which is what we've seen. Yeah, and it's it's good that you uh, you kind of connected him and uh, and and Mark Bergevin in Montreal there because uh, I feel like he definitely is on that Bergevin spectrum of either great moves or really really questionable ones with very very little in between. Um, So. Yeah, well, I guess I, we'll, we'll see. I mean, this is going to be a big test for them here, both, you know, in terms of uh, whether they can be good enough this season to entice John Tavares to stick around. And if not, um, how he handles that. And um, I guess we'll, we'll we'll see. But yeah, if I mean, if they miss the playoffs this year and John Tavares walks, it's there's going to be very little left behind him. And it's going to be tough for, for Garth Snow to stay around for another decade, I feel like. Yeah, I totally agree. Um Okay, and the second question Chris has has here is uh, who gets fired first, John uh, Joel Quinville or uh, Stan Bowman? Well, I feel like uh, it's always the coach that goes first, mm. unless it's a situation where the GM has uh, you know backed up the coach, like in LA last year where they both went at the same time. Right. But I feel like there's a lot of you know dissatisfaction in Chicago right now, and I totally agree that they they are on the downswing. And I, I heard you talking on the podcast, I think with Craig Custance recently about, you know, whether that core is done. And, you know, I think for right now, probably mm-hmm. uh, they are on a downswing. But I look at, you know, how good Patrick Kane, Jonathan Taves are. Maybe in Duncan Keith's career, uh, they, they are done. But I think that there's time still for those guys to be part of like a veteran core in a rebuilt Blackhawks team. And they have done a good job drafting uh, they've got some pretty good young guys coming up. I think there's so much criticism like shoveled onto that team, but when you win three Stanley Cups and you're trying to keep that core together, they've definitely made some mistakes. You know, like I think trading Jalmerson over Seabrook was a mistake. Signing Seabrook to that contract in the first place was a mistake. But I think they're mistakes that any team in the NHL probably would have made, especially in that situation where you're winning constantly. You think that everyone you have is this like big great game breaker, right? Especially because Seabrook was part of that that tight core, right? So it's not like he was their fifth best defenseman that they signed to this crazy deal. He was at worst their third best defenseman during those cup runs. So I feel like they get too much crap. And if you give them time, like there's no way that you can keep being competitive there the entire way through Taves and Kane's career because of what they're making and and what they've had to sacrifice with the cap. Hmm. But there is a possibility with the people in that organization, how smart they are that maybe two, three years from now they can refresh that roster and be good again. So I feel like neither Quenville or Bowman should be on the hot seat. I feel like they've accomplished too much. They've shown that they're smart enough to figure this out. Right. And we, they kind of deserve a little bit of our patience, you know, like, and I know like with the Twitter community and the analytics community, we like to get on every single, uh, 
problematic contractor every move that goes mildly wrong and you know picking apart and that's our job as yes. analysts right but in the long run it's hard to deny what they've been able to do and even last year you know they went out in four against Nashville and you know maybe they wouldn't have gone out against another team uh, they still finished first in their conference and there was some smoke in there smoke and mirrors in there but I think this is still a pretty good team. Maybe not so much now that they don't have Jalmerson and their defense is going to struggle a little bit. But Corey Crawford is much better than people give him credit for. I think Taves is better than people want to admit because, you know, he's so overrated by certain people in the media that everyone goes the complete opposite direction. I still think he's a top 10 center in this league. So I'm not ready to write them off as an org yet. And I don't think either of those guys should be on the free market, free agent market anytime soon. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I feel like we didn't really answer Chris's question there. I guess I guess neither <laughs> guy should be fired. Um, yeah. yeah, it's it's crazy that um, Joel Quenville's been there since two thousand eight, uh, which is five years longer than any other currently tenured coach. It's nuts. So yeah, but you know what? He's um, he's a heck of a coach, and I thought I honestly thought they weren't very good this past season, and he really. Um, pulled some strings, especially as the year it went along and put some of yeah, those younger, younger players in a, you know, he, he was willing to, um, experiment and try out different combinations. And I always liked that from my coach rather than just, um, you know, being stubborn and just sticking with one thing, even if it's not working. And that's a testament to how good of a coach he is and his staying power. And I think that he'll probably be able to stay in Chicago as long as he wants, unless they go on some sort of a sustained, uh, dip, which at least with, this current core, like it feels like their basement is, is, is elevated pretty high. So I don't think he has to worry about that. Yeah. I think, I think Joel Quinville is a pretty damn brilliant coach and you know, like, like every coach, he's going to have his little blind spots. Like I know that people rip him a lot because he loved Brian Bolig so much and he loved Dave Boland, but you know, Mike Babcock loves Matt Martin. All these coaches have, yeah, there are certain types of players that those grindy fourth line guys that aren't very good that they love. And I think it's just that coaches are too close to the situation to, to take a step back and, and look at how ineffective those guys are. You know, like Claude Julian, one of the best coaches in the league loved Sean Thornton, you know, like everybody has their guy that just is terrible that they love in the lineup. So I feel like that's kind of like a thing that I ignore in coaches because they all have that blind spot. So you, you got to look at like what you were saying with all the little adjustments that coach Q made throughout the season. And obviously they've had some good development. Uh, Ryan Hartman looks like a real keeper and they've got uh to that's coming up here soon. Mm. They've got some, some good guys on the rise here. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, okay. Will Harte here asks, he basically asked us to rank the seven Canadian teams going into the season. Um, All right, we're talking just this season. Uh, yeah, going into the season, and I guess, well, we can have both discussions in terms of um, this season and sort of being in the best position moving forward as well. Although I'd feel cool. like those two things, ah, uh, I guess the Habs could kind of throw a monkey wrench and, and and really be different on those two lists. But I feel like yes, yeah, I don't know. Okay, let's 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 just do purely for this season. Okay, uh, the top I would probably say is. Uh, my instinct is to go with Edmonton, but they're so like they still haven't addressed their weaknesses on defense, and they're going to be out Sakara for 
a good portion of the season. Mm. I feel like in terms of like the actual standings, the Canadians are probably going to finish on the top. And then we're looking at a mix of the Oilers, Leafs, and Flames. I still don't... I know everybody is like to throw it in my face that I didn't think that the senators were going to make the playoffs and they made the conference finals, but I still don't expect them to make the playoffs this year. Yeah. Uh, so I guess the senators after them, and then you've got, well, well, would you put the jets or, I don't know. I feel like uh, it's so tough. I find the jets are so unpredictable. Maybe with the goaltending now, I'd put them above the senators and then the Canucks last because yes. the Canucks are definitely going to be last. Oh, I think what confuses me about the Canucks is all those signings that they made this year that, you know, like in a vacuum, they're all pretty good signings. And then you're like, but but why do you want to do that? You're not competing for anything. You're just like, yeah, I, so I think I think the the motivation behind that was like, I don't think Michael Dozato and Sam Gagne and Alex Burmistrov are going to put them over the top to the point where they're going to really ruin their uh, their position in terms of the, the, the draft lottery sweepstakes. But they're going to have like actual NHLers that people can come to the game and see as well because last year they were trotting out guys that no one had ever heard of and had no reason to have heard of in the past and it right. was just a it was just a complete tire fire. So I think they're just like they're striving for a certain baseline level of respectability while also bottoming out and, and getting high picks. Um and they're probably gonna accomplish it because they're gonna be one of the what, two or three worst teams in the league. So, uh, yeah, I feel that 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 is something that is a prediction I feel very safe in that they're going to be the worst Canadian team. Um, up top, I agree. If if Carey Price can stay healthy and give the Habs like sixty to sixty five games, they're going to win a lot of regular season games. Um, but would you just kind of tear the Habs, Leafs, Oilers, and Flames, and then separate the other teams, or like it's kind of tough to distinguish between those four in terms of this exercise? Yeah, and I feel like it's tough to predict how good Calgary's going to be, too, because I, I think that they've got some major room for growth there, especially with Hamannick in the lineup as well. Like, they're top four. They're, I mean, as much as you can make fun of uh, Michael Stone, as a fifth defenseman, that's pretty hefty. You know, like, he can produce some offense. He's going to be pretty sheltered with that top four. You know, you're probably going to see a return to form from uh, from Brody this year, not having to carry a guy like Stone or worse around. So they're they're a team that I think is legitimately exciting. And uh, people like to make fun of Mike Smith a lot, and he gives them a lot of uh, material for it. But if you look at the quality of shots he's faced the last two years in Arizona, like he's been an easily top ten goaltender. In, top 10 goaltender in the league last two years. Now, maybe he's a guy that needs to face that quality of shot to show his talent. So he might not be as great looking in Calgary as he would be in Arizona, but I think that he might be an upgrade this year. And if Calgary can get some consistent goaltending from him, they're a, they're a really good team. Like they don't have very many weaknesses. They've got a few guys in the lineup that uh, aren't very good, but for the most part, they're, they've got two really good lines up front. They've got two really good pairs on the back end and probably a decent third pair built around stone. So uh, I don't see much to complain about with them. I, they could actually end up being Canada's best team. Like, that's how good I think they could be. Yeah, it's very conceivable. I mean, obviously, the uh, the last in, lasting image we have of them uh, most recently was getting swept by the Ducks. But I feel like uh, 
they played better than that in that series, and it was kind of a just a rough draw in terms of a yeah. few, you know they had some late bet like late unfortunate penalties in some of those games, and obviously they blew that that one game at home where they had the multi goal lead late, and I feel like that you know if you replay that series. Um, it's much more competitive and, and, and they're in it and I think they're a pretty good team and they had a good summer and we'll, we'll see. I mean, it's, 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 it's so tough. Obviously it's just based on the pure high end talent at the top of the roster, like the Leafs and the Oilers just instantly uh, draw your eyes to them. I don't know if you, if you had to pick a team moving forward, uh, would you take the Leafs or the Oilers? Well, man, I think I'd take the Leafs. And it's not just the roster. I, I think they do have a better roster, like top to bottom. Mm. I think their management is just so much smarter. You know, I, I'm just not convinced by Chiarelli. I did not like the Jordan Everly trade at all. I know that Everly got a lot of crap last year, last couple of years actually, but uh, I, I think he's still a legitimate first line player. You know, defensive issues aside. You know, people look at his lack of like uh, getting in one-on-one battles and think that he's soft defensively, but he's actually pretty good in other areas, uh, better than a lot of other players on the Oilers, that's for sure. I don't like that trade. I didn't love the Hall trade, obviously. I I feel like we're in the heavy majority there Mm. outside of Edmonton, but I'm not seeing anything from Chiarelli so far that's giving me the confidence that he is going to continue making the Oilers better instead of giving the reins to McDavid and saying like, please make this happen instead of, you know, giving him some support. And I think the Leafs are already ahead of the game there with some really young prospects that, uh, that give Matthews the support that he needs. And they've also got, you know, like other great centers that they have confidence in and like Nazem Kadri, and they've got young defensemen as well. I think defense is still an area that Toronto needs to look at, but at the very least, they've got some guys there. Like I, I would put Jake Gardner and Morgan Riley ahead of anyone on the Oilers on defense, maybe except for Clefbaum. Clefbaum is above, but those two like are better than Russell or Larson or whoever that the Oilers have. I don't have much confidence in that group. Yeah, but counterpoint, Connor McDavid. Yes, this is true. This is true. <laughs> yeah, that, that I, I guess that's that's sort of the tantalizing part of it, right? Where it's like, if you just had faith that they'd be able to build around him and do, you know, utilize their assets wisely, uh, it would be a, a no-brainer that you just take the team that has Connor McDavid and figure out the rest. But the Leafs definitely, if it feels like they have something more special building than just the one player. Um, yeah. And... It's, I guess, you just have to go with them because of that. Um, but it, it, it's pretty close. Well, and I think the other thing is, how much is Dreisaitl going to get, right? Because if, if he ends up getting something like $9 million, I'd be extremely worried for the Oilers. Because if you look at his numbers away from McDavid last year and away from Taylor Hall the year before, like he's never been the singular driver of a line. And I know that people... Uh, point out that he was great in the playoffs this year in terms of point production, but uh, I was following some Oilers analysts uh, a couple months ago, and they were pointing out that he had something like a 106 PDO in the playoffs, something like that, and like a 42% Corsi away from McDavid. I was like, okay, so that's why you don't judge by playoff performance. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, he's he's gonna he's gonna cash in and. It's gonna make it. It's gonna make it even tougher for them to uh, to fill out the stuff around McDavid. Um, 
You know, okay, so a, re- a related question to the Oilers and Leafs discussion we're having right now is Owen Starlin asks, uh, will you please discuss what you think are the NHL's most legitimate and illegitimate narratives heading into next season? Um, so what, looking ahead, I, mean, I know we have a good month and a half or so till we even start really thinking about the regular season, but what are some of the top storylines that you think we should kind of be keying in on and focusing on in on as we preview the season? Ooh, I feel like the the one that <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. I think the one that will probably prop up or crop up really early is as soon as the Maple Leafs get an injury, right? It'll mm-hmm. be like this injury watch of like, oh, they were so healthy last year. This year they so can't have that same health. Yeah, exactly, right? So they're gonna follow these two teams and and look at sophomore slumps and stuff like that. I'm sure that if Austin Matthews doesn't score four goals in his first game, there will be some sophomore slump talk on Toronto radio from some hot takeists. Yeah. So I feel like that'll be stuff to watch. Uh, one thing I'm interested in, and this is obviously my Montreal bias, but the Canadians let it be known earlier this summer that they don't expect Carey Price to play 60 games in a season ever again. Oh. And I, I look at that and I'm like, well, if you're looking at a 55 uh, game goal or 55 games a year, why are you paying him ten and a half million dollars a year? That's that's a pretty tough sell for this market. So if Carey Price ends up playing like fifty to fifty-five games and he's healthy the entire time, if they you know struggle again in the playoffs, that's going to be an interesting little uh, thing to look at in terms of how that's covered because that's going to be a weird one. Well, why didn't you tell me that before I picked the Canadians to be finishing atop, <laughs> atop the standings for Canadian teams? Now you I don't like have faith in Al Montoya, uh, Buddy Cop Al? No, um, <laughs> I mean he was good last year. He'll be fine. He's like the consummate backup goalie in today's yeah. NHL. So yeah, I, I have a feeling there, there's a chance that uh, the Canadians might bring up uh, Charlie Lindgren to play a few games too because mm. he's had some really good results in the AHL and every game he started. I think it's only two games in the NHL that he's started, but he's been really good as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that, I mean, the Leafs and, and Oilers sort of just seeing if, uh, these young teams that have the young superstars can kind of take that next step. Like, you know, they took a big one last year in terms of just pulling their franchises out of the dumps and actually making the playoffs. But now it's, can they take that next step as well? And especially before, uh, some of those big contracts start to kick in, like this is their opportunity to strike and, and really make something happen. So I'll be fascinated to see that. I mean, we mentioned the Blackhawks earlier. I feel like a legitimate storyline will be seeing whether this really is the year that they finally decline and fall off the map or whether they're able to kind of keep just sticking around and winning games despite all the concerns that we might have about their roster. And then the other one is I'm very fascinated to see how the uh, the Metro Division plays out you know, obviously, the Penguins having won the last two Stanley Cups, um, it's feasible that there's going to be some sort of a fatigue there, and they might have a down season. But at the same time, they still have so much talent there that they could very conceivably want to be be one of the best teams in the league again. And then, obviously, you know, with the Capitals and OV, there's always going to be intrigue there about whether this is going to be quote unquote their season or not. So. Um, yeah, I think those are sort of the things that I'll be watching for most closely. Yeah, speaking of the Capitals, how long into the season do you think before there's some questioning of Ovechkin's captaincy? Let's let's say that's probably going to be like a, one of the more illegitimate narratives that go, goes into it because 
if he is unable to completely, you know, uh, recover his goal scoring that he had the rest of his career, he had a bit of a down year last year, which, you know, a down year for Ovechkin is a great year for everybody else. Yes. But, you know, if he's not a 50 goal scorer next year and the Capitals are probably not going to be as good, I think they're still going to be really good, but they're probably not going to win the President's Trophy. Probably not going to win the Stanley Cup. I'll say this. For once, I'm not going to pick them. Uh, maybe I'll change my mind in six months. But if they struggle this year, how long until some hot takeists start uh, going after Ovi? Because I don't think it'll take very long. Yeah, I don't think it'll take very long. I mean, they are already taking. They, I've already seen some slander. Um, like a picture, uh, a picture came out of him at the beach, and he was like kind of slouching and. Uh, people were questioning his weight and whether he was taking the summer seriously and working out. And it's like, oh, are we doing this? this are we doing really doing this again? Um, yeah, I, I'd be cool with like just getting rid of captaincy in general because all of all of those debates about whether a player really is fit to be a team's captain are just mind blowing to me. So I, I try not to engage in those. Um, yeah, the the caps. You know, it's an interesting strategy. Um, I'm sure it's not intentional, but they had a few really good summers and they didn't have anything to show for it at the end of the season. So maybe having a really bad summer here will really uh, flip the script for them and maybe <laughs> maybe surprise us in the playoffs. They're trying to reverse reverse psychology yes. or something. Yes. Yeah. I, I feel like they were just so devastated this year. Like they bought into the idea that this was their year. And I, I guess they just like sat on their hands for too long and then before they knew it it was time to make all these moves and they're like oh crap we have to lose Johansson and like I know you've been on this a few times but this was a really bad summer in terms of asset management for them yeah especially since they did lose in the second round so they had plenty of time to plan this out agreed by then by the time the decisions actually had to be made it's not like it snuck up on them when they were playing late into June and all of a sudden they were like oh crap we have like two weeks here to figure it out like they I don't know. I we've talked about it enough. Um, ben Gordon asks, uh, with the Wild signing uh, Nino Niederreiter and Michael Granlund, uh, although the ter- terms differ on those contracts and the AAV is similar, um, who do you think will hold more value and why? Oh, that's tough. I I can't even really defend this, but for whatever reason, I've never quite loved Michael Granlund or Mikael Granlund. Mm. Uh, I do love Nino Niederreiter though. I think it's kind of a style of play thing. Um, you know, Niederreiter is one year younger. Usually I go with the center, but uh, I just I just like that Niederreiter is always stirring things. Uh, he's an agitator. He's a scorer. He just is super dynamic to me. Granlin is a very good playmaker, but I don't know, something about his game, I don't think he's amazing. You know what I mean? Like, I don't right. think he's a he's a top line player, whereas Niederreiter, I think, can be. So I, I think I'd, I'd go with Niederreiter. I mean, you mentioned all the reasons to like Niederreiter. is also the fact that he was tied with Forsberg, Malkin, and Ovechkin in, in five on five points last year. So he's There's also a good one. incredibly productive as well. Um, yeah, yeah I, I've seen people mention this, but I do love that sort of profile Niederreiter has in terms of he doesn't necessarily need to play top minutes or play with the top guys, but he's just going to be like, if you prorate his stats, he's going to be so sneaky productive and, and he just gets the job done regardless of how he's used. And that's an incredibly valuable player. I mean, 
Granlin, on the other hand, is a fascinating case study, and I'm really curious to see how he does next season because, you know, he came into the league uh, with his pedigree and he was a, a top 10 pick and we all, you know, expected that he'd be incredibly dynamic and be one of the best playmakers in the league and it took a while. And last year he really came into his own. Um, now some of it, uh, conveniently enough, seems like it was percentage driven. And if that comes back down to earth a little bit, maybe he looks less appealing and maybe uh, this really slants the discussion in, in favor of Niederreiter, but assuming that Granlund can keep up this level of play, it's a very interesting debate and I think it is sort of just purely based on sort of subjective stylistic preferences because they're very different players, but they're both um, immensely effective in their own ways. Yeah, and I feel like also with Minnesota, I'm kind of stuck looking at them and, you know, you've got Koivu, Granlund, and Coyle down the middle, right? That's that's a pretty good trio, so you're not going to really suffer no matter what. Like, they've got... I don't know what it is that they've been so underrated for so long, but, you know, you look at some of the guys that they have producing, especially at even strength, and I wonder if maybe they didn't have the Zach Parise contract to worry about if people would be a lot more uh, positive about them, because, like... Jason Zucker the last two years has also been like incredible at five on five. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charlie Coyle's great at five on five. Niederreiter, like you said, like uh, I think last year Zucker had like forty something points at five on five, which is yeah, he was insane. you know top line level. Yeah, he was he was tied with uh, with Nick Baxter and Brad Marchand. So yeah, it's some pretty good names to be in the middle of. Yeah, yeah, and but twenty even strength goals. But so are should we be concerned? about the fact that they did seem to outperform their underlying numbers just as a team last year. Like, do you think there is a bit of a regression coming here, or do you think it's just Bruce Boudreau magic? Well, I, I think there's a little bit of Bruce Boudreau magic, for for sure. Because if, if you look throughout his career, it seems like every team that he's on, they outperform their possession by a, a fairly significant margin. I remember, you know, like, when he was in Anaheim, they were never a great possession team. Uh, they were okay, but they were never great. Uh, same kind of thing with Washington I think outside of a couple of years, they were, you know, middle of the pack possession team, but like score like crazy. He's a guy who like, he's the one coach in the NHL. I, I find that consistently finds ways to improve team shooting percentage. And I wouldn't expect that to change necessarily, but it might drop a little bit because it was so out of whack last year. But then again, they were the team that had, like the most high danger scoring chances according to sport logic by like a wide margin. And I think they had the best differential as well, Mm. which, uh, you know, this is something that I think Boudreaux wasn't that great at in Washington uh, for most of his career. But the last few years, he's really found a way to cut down chances defensively. And that's why we saw Devin Dubnik put up these completely absurd numbers. uh, Cause I think Dubnik is more like a mid range goaltender and, he just didn't face much for challenging shots last year. I, I believe it was the fewest in the league or second fewest in the league after LA. Yeah. Yeah, they definitely, uh, it, it, it's, it's no coincidence that as um, things went off the rails a bit for them last season, uh, his play dipped accordingly. And I think those things were intertwined, but yeah, I'm, 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 opt- I'm optimistic about them heading into next season. They have, you know, they might lack that um, traditional, superstar but they have so many uh good productive players that i'd like to think that 
those things will add up and, and push them over the top. But we, I feel like we've been saying that for a while now as well. And I'd like to finally see something come of it. Um, yeah, I guess we got to get uh, Tyler Dello on again and explain <laughs> uh, what's more important, the superstars or the depth players. I've seen him get on that a, a few times this I, summer. I think that's a fascinating debate. I don't think there's necessarily one right answer. It's probably like depends on, on which superstars and what kind of depth. But um, yeah, there's uh, there's many different ways to uh, to assemble a winning roster. Yeah, I have a, I have like a hypothesis that you can be a great regular season team without stars, mm. but you can't win without them. You know no, what I mean? No, why, like, do you, why do you think that is? I, I think it's just when it comes down to it in the playoffs, you've got to have those few guys that you know. Like if your first line is neutralized completely by the other team's first line, you're not going to be able to you know, like shift. Shift the shift the game in high pressure situations, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got to have those couple guys who just are complete game breakers. And I think we saw that in the Stanley Cup final with the with Ryan Johansson out for the for the Predators. They didn't have that top line that could just dominate other lines, and they they did great in terms of possession stats. But every time Sidney Crosby got the puck, it was a game breaking situation for the Penguins, and he just took over that series. And if you don't have a guy like that up front, it's hard to really find a way around that. And the Penguins had two. And, you know, the Predators were able to shut down Malkin extremely effectively, uh, the Subban uh, Ekholm pairing, but they had no answer for Crosby. And mm. you, you've got to have a couple guys who can just take over games. And if you don't, you know, I, I guess you, you end up having to change the game in your third and fourth lines. And, you know, that can work in a regular season game. But over a playoff series, you know, you're counting on guys who play less time to do the damage for you. And I think that's where you get diminishing returns. Yeah, no, that makes sense, especially, you know, when the game slows down a little bit and you have more more time to to game plan and uh, try to slow down the other team uh, that you would need. Those guys can kind of put you over the top as opposed to just treading water. Um, John Abney here asks, are there any good defensemen who aren't quote unquote puck moving defensemen? Always see this phrase th- thrown around and I'm, cu- and I'm curious. So are, is it possible in today's NHL to be an effective uh, blue liner without really having any puck skills? I mean, I guess not without having any, mm. but I think that what most people talk about as puck movers are talking about like great transition defensemen or right. offensive defensemen. So I would say guys like, uh, well, I don't know. Vlasic's pretty good in transition. Jalmerson too. Yeah. They both but have, they I, both definitely have a skill. Yeah. There's, there's skill there, but I don't think that they would be called puck moving defensemen. Right. Is that fair? Yeah, no, they're, they're definitely like the more, um, they're, they're the modern day defensive defensemen. Yeah, like, and those guys are extraordinarily rare. Yeah. Like, off the top of my head, those are the only two guys of that mold that I can name that are legitimately great and also don't produce anything offensively. Oh, actually, you know what? Uh, Chris Tanev yeah. as well. Yeah, especially before this past season. Kind of, yes. his results are weird, but... Yeah, yeah I, would, I wouldn't uh, put much weight in this season, would you? No. With Vancouver? No, I I think that was, it was just a lost season, and, and he was banged up, and I think he was playing injured, and... I'm yeah. still a big fan of his game. Um, yeah, no, there, there's a few of those guys, but they, they, you can't look at their points to figure out how valuable they are. That's for sure. But they 
can still make that pass out of their own zone and they're not just you know they don't they don't have brick hands for sure so it's it's yeah you, you do have to have like a certain baseline level of talent to hang around in today's nhl regardless of how good you might be positionally or or, or what have you defensively like you still need to be able to do something with the puck yeah, absolutely. And it's the same with forwards, right? Like there are players in the NHL who are good at who are good forwards who don't produce a lot of points, but like they have to have like you, I was like the way that I broke it up last year for that uh, top 20 of each position thing where it was, you know, defense, offense and transition. Hmm. There are no legitimately good players in the NHL who are only good at one of those three. Right? right? You have to have two. And I think that's where you look at guys like Tanev and Jarmelson and uh, I massacred that name. Jarmelson. Yeah, now that I'm not even going to try. Nick. Classic. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, Nick. Uh, Those those guys are all good at two of those three. And they might not produce offense, but they create the situation that can lead to offense. And I think that's the major difference. Yep. Uh, I agree with that. Um Let's see here. Let's 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 bang through a couple more. Um, oh, Josh Stoffer here asks, how do you evaluate whether players are good on the penalty kill outside of just watching them play lots? Do shots against per 60 tell us anything in that sample, or do we need to look at something else? Yeah, I usually look at, like, course against relative to team. Mm-hmm. Um, just in, like, I haven't done any calculations on how persistent it is, but just looking at year to year over the last five, six years that I've been looking at stats, it seems to be pretty persistent uh, year to year. I look at longer samples as well to see, but uh, for the most part, guys who are good at the penalty kill stay good at the penalty kill. I look at goals against as well. That's less persistent, right? It's a little bit more random. But I also have the advantage of looking at sport logic stats where you can look at you know specific plays like breakups and... Uh, right. Guys who are good at the at defending their own blue line, guys who are good at clearing their own zone. I would say like zone exits is probably a good thing uh, to look at hmm. if that's trackable data for you or if there's a database that you can find with it. Uh, I think on the penalty kill specifically, there's more value to dump outs, right? Right. So like you're looking more at zone clearances than controlled exits yes. for the penalty kill because that's what's more important. Okay. So players who are good at that, like uh, PK Subban, the last couple of years has dumped the puck out a little bit too often at even strength for my liking. Yep. But that strategy has made him essentially like number one or number two in the best penalty killing defenseman in the NHL. So it's it's interesting to see like what kind of defensive strategies don't really work well at even strength, but are really good on the penalty kill. And you can see a lot of players who are like that. You know, they're not very good defensive players at even strength, but on the penalty kill, they are. It's uh, it's fun to find those guys. Yeah, especially since he's, like, mastered that uh, alley-oop lob play out of his own, which can be yeah, sometimes infuriating sure. at 5 on 5 But um, it, it's immensely useful at killing time and letting his teammates change on the penalty kill. So... Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I'd be, I haven't looked at this. I'd be very curious to and whether it would lead to anything um, enlightening. But I always wonder about how much of special teams play is sort of, uh, you know, schematics based and, and tactical versus actual player talent and maybe particularly on the penalty kill. Like, I'd be curious to see if a good penalty killer goes from one team to another, whether his 
uh, underlying numbers persist or whether there's noticeable difference. And I guess vice versa, like if a, if a, if a player who's not that great on the penalty kill goes to another team and all of a sudden his numbers dramatically improve, whether that's a sign that it's just something that whoever's running the, the penalty kill on that team is doing as opposed to that player having some sort of natural penalty killing ability by himself. Yeah, I think that's a great question, and I'd also be really interested to look into that. Uh, I think that there are a few things that probably make for the potential of a good penalty killer, and that would be, you know, guys who are are good at staying in lanes, essentially, like good reaction time to the puck moving, um, a lot of instincts of where plays develop. I, I have a theory that offensive players are better on the penalty kill than uh, defensive players like even strength defensive players, right. right? Because they know what the offensive player wants to do. And I think that's why you see guys like uh, Max Pacioretty or or other players of that stature around the league, when they get a chance to play on the penalty kill, they're actually phenomenal And because they know where the puck's going to go. They know where they would want to put the puck. You know, who leads the the league in the history of shorthanded goals is Wayne Gretzky. You know, like people don't think of Wayne Gretzky as a great even strength player, but on the penalty kill, like watch video of it and it's – phenomenal what he was able to do so i i have a theory well hypothesis about that that uh, offensive players are better on the penalty kills so well we'll, we'll, we'll see if that ever bears out i'll take it even one step further i think that you know for a while and obviously this is reflected in other parts of the game not just the penalty kill but there was this kind of size bias and you'd want bigger players and you'd want guys that could block a ton of shots and get in the way of those shooting lanes but the more I watch and the more I think about it, like I understand why you wouldn't want to have your high-end skilled offensive players out there um, using up a lot of their energy on the penalty kill when they're not going to have that many opportunities to score themselves. And, you know, they can put themselves in harm's way by having to block shots and potentially get injured. But like, I, I love the idea of some using like smaller kind of quicker players to just wreck havoc by just consistently pressuring the other team especially if they're you know content passing the puck back and forth at the, at the blue line and, and just trying to make something happen by be, getting in those passing lanes and being very aggressive as opposed to sitting back and just letting the shots come to you yeah absolutely and i, I don't know maybe like obviously we don't have data for this and i don't know if it was before your time because i know you're a young one dimitri mm. but uh, theo flurry used to be phenomenal on the penalty kill because he was just not only was he fast and you know a demon on loose pucks but he also pissed guys off too and drew yep. a lot of penalties and if he was able to get the puck you know he was he was gone on a breakaway and i, I feel like those kinds of guys also back teams off uh i'm trying to think of an, a modern example as well because there was i remember there was somebody that i watched oh paul byron paul byron tiny mm-hmm. little guy and last year on the penalty kill you could tell that teams didn't want to play with the puck on the point when he was on the pk because if he got any chance to get that puck yeah, he's gone. you're not catching him yeah. yeah you're not catching him so like i'd love to see Connor mcdavid play pk don't block any shots, Connor, but just like stick there in the middle of the ice and wait for a pass that you can pick off. I know you're smart enough to do it and score 50 shorthanded goals in the year. Yeah, well, especially with the with the uh, with the instincts that you mentioned that offensive players have. Like, I feel like he'd be able to jump a lot of those passing lanes, and it could really Absolutely. lead to some interesting opportunities. Um, Riku asks, which of the franchise players that are getting a bit older would you look to trade? Uh, to get good value for them while you still can, I guess, whether that's this season or even looking ahead. I mean, we mentioned Claude Giroux, obviously, already, but uh, 
I think maybe the ship's even sailed in terms of getting good value for him at this point, unless he can rebuild his value with a good season this year. But I don't know. Is there are there any other guys off the top of your head? And you know, we should say with a caveat that uh, you know, I, when I had Craig Cousins on, we were talking about trading John Tavares, and I, I made the point of it's it's very easy for us to just be kind of emotionally detached and say, of course, you should trade this guy and get some good value for him while you still can. But I understand why. Uh, a lot of this stuff is hypothetical because the teams might be reluctant because of what that player might mean to them, whether it's, you know, just fan base attachment or jersey sales or ticket sales or, or marketing or what have you. Um, but with that out of the way, uh, are there any names off the, off the top of your head that you think are candidates to, to fit the bill here? Well, it's tough because you got to kind of skirt the line between a guy who's, uh, you know, obviously too old to help their team and, another team could see them as, you know, a great player to help them out. I feel like if they had uh, thought of it, or not thought of it, but like given up on the season a little bit earlier, Jeff Carter could have got LA a King's Ransom last year. You know, like he was having... I see what you did there. Nah, I didn't even mean to do that. (laughs) But, (laughs) you know, he had a phenomenal year. Uh, He's probably not going to have a year like that again, although he is a great player. I think that uh, any team would give up a ton for Jeff Carter, but is is LA going to be competitive again next couple of years? Probably not. Yeah. I don't think that they've got the talent to refresh to to become a scoring team anytime soon. So he'd be a guy that I'd look at. Um, if Minnesota wasn't so strong, I would say Ryan Suter because yeah. he still has that name recognition, and uh, he hasn't like he hasn't really declined, but he should probably play fewer minutes. I think he'd be a guy and he's like, his contract is crazy, but it's also not the worst in terms of fitting under the cap. Yeah. I think those are the two guys that I would look at. Yeah. It's, it's tough because a lot of the, um, more obvious candidates are also on teams that fancy themselves contenders this season. So like, mm-hmm. it would be tough for them to, it would be like a real, like it would take like a real, like sort of a just badass GM to be willing to, you know, take that type of a PR hit while also maybe thinking like, maybe this player is not even that good anymore and we can fill in the gap and, and be better for it both right now and moving forward. But I don't know, like what, what, what do you about Ovechkin? Well, yeah, but the thing is, is like with him uh, and the money he's still owed. Um, yeah. I wonder what the, what the market for him is, right? Like there was, there was a lot of talk about that. Um, at the start of the summer before they had to offload some guys and, and make it work financially. I'm not sure whether that would ever happen. Like, what do you, what do you, what about Jonathan Taves? Ooh, ooh, that's tough. I feel like you could get probably more than Taves is worth for Jonathan Taves because of his pedigree, right? So that's, that's a pretty good one. I mean, just the fact that he's a 29 year old who still has six years and over $60 million still load. Um, yeah, <laughs> I feel like, yeah, but I, I, I do wonder whether, uh, obviously he has like a no move and the Blackhawks aren't going to trade him because of what he means to that franchise. But I do wonder what they could get for him in a deal without even considering how much better off they'd be for it financially in like 2021 when he's not that good anymore, but still owed 20 or still owed 10 and a half million per season. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, if we were looking at a couple seasons ago, I would say, like, I know, I understand the decision that they made, but if the Canucks would have traded the Sedin twins a couple of years ago, they'd be in such a much better position right now. 
because they could have gotten a lot. Yeah. You know, whether or not uh, teams would be able to fit in that cap space would be another question, but I feel like you can always work out a deal, right? Like I feel like uh, oftentimes we're, we're too willing to say, Oh, well it wouldn't fit with the cap. Whereas like, if you really want to work out a deal, you can figure something out, you know, like PK Subban was traded for Shea Weber. Those are two massive contracts. You know, Hey, a year ago we could say that's uh, the attitude that Nashville had with Shea Weber was to move on from a, from an aging player. Mm-hmm. But, uh, it's just looking through the list of, uh, listed players now you know maybe if uh if boston struggles to make the playoffs this year they can move on from zdeno chara now he's not what he used to be at all but i would say that a lot of teams would spend a fair amount at the deadline for zdeno chara for a playoff run yep i think that's a good one um i'm gonna take it to the ultimate extreme here and i've brought this up on the podcast before but brent burns Ooh, yeah, I've thought about that recently as well. Because his, his he's not young. His, well, he's thirty two. He's gonna be, yeah. he's gonna turn thirty three this season. His eight year, sixty four million dollar contract has not even started oh. yet. Oh man, that's um, that's rough. He just scored a ton of goals and won the Norris Trophy. Uh, I I I'm, I'd be so curious to see what you could get for him. Yeah, I, I would too. Would pay a ran- uh, I, th- I think a team would pay a ton for him, and it'd be tough to sell to your to your fans, especially since the Sharks are, you know, despite losing Patrick Marlowe, will could once again be pretty good next season, I think, and and be right right there in the Pacific. So it's kind of tough, but man, that would be a, a fascinating kind of time to uh, get out while you still can and get and re- recoup the ultimate value as opposed to, as you mentioned with, with a guy like Chara or Sedin's where you're not getting what you could have for a few years ago. Yeah. I, I wonder, you know, like if, if they would be able to lay that entire contract on another organization, mm. that's, that'd be interesting because, you know, I like Brent Burns a lot and I know you do too, yep. but at his age and with the amount that he shoots, like how, when is his shoulder going to give out? Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm not sure how he's going to age. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's a tough one. Yeah, um, see, let's do one or two more here. St. Okay. Louis Dave asks, are there any key assumptions towards the game that you carried a few years ago that you've changed with improved levels of game data since? Definitely. Uh, I was definitely one of those people who was like, shot quality doesn't exist. Uh I would say I was also on the uh, quality of competition doesn't matter either. Mm. And I still don't think quality of competition is as important as a lot of people believe. Right. It's definitely not as important as, say, quality of teammates. Yes. But there's definitely some data out there now that shows that, especially at the very top of the lineup when you're facing like the best players on the opposing team, it does have quite the impact. And shot quality, obviously. I mean, geez, half my job now is uh, examining shot quality for Sport Logic. So mm. obviously, my opinions changed there quite a bit, especially looking at uh, at the playoff results last year. I think it was like the team that won the high danger scoring chance uh, battle won like thirteen of sixteen series or something like that last year, which is. Pretty impressive. Obviously, you'd have to look a little bit deeper than that to to get anything uh, of value for predictiveness. But uh, it, it was interesting to to watch just anecdotally and descriptively 
how that uh, worked out last year. And there's definitely a lot more teams right now that are chasing shot quality than ever before. I think we saw that a lot with the Penguins that uh, they kind of, I think they kind of realized that without Latang, they weren't going to win the possession battle in the playoffs. Mm. And they'd already kind of shifted during the regular season into trying to get more uh, extremely high quality scoring chances. And they just went all in for it in the playoffs and just like formed a shot blockade in front of their net to keep uh, Flurry and Murray insulated as much as they can or as much as they could. And it ended up working for them. Who knows if it could work long term, but it was it was an interesting change of pace. Yeah. Yeah. I I still think it's not the the optimal strategy for the full season, no. but in in terms of like that twenty five game sprint or so, um, they obviously showed that you can do it, and they made it work. And yeah, I, I'd be alarmed if uh, if our answer to this question was no, we haven't changed our mind on anything because that would uh, that would be depressing in terms of uh, where the game's headed. Uh, I'm very curious what our answer to this question, if it's posed to us again in five years, will be when we get oh, yeah. even more information and testing on that information and I, I think our our views on the game could change quite a bit so so that's pretty exciting to think about but also uh kind of tantalizing just because we're, we're waiting for it I, I feel like we're ready at this point um yeah i feel like we're probably going to know a lot more about uh defensive contributions five years mm-hmm. from now so yes. i think we're starting to hit in on that now and like the obvious ones we we already knew about, right? Like every, everybody already knows that uh, Patrice Bergeron is phenomenal defensively, but it'll be finding out things that we didn't know about players that, and maybe see why coaches value some players. Uh, one thing that I found super interesting this year is that uh, John Tavares has changed his game defensively to the point where like I had him, if I had a vote, I would have put him on my, uh, on my uh, Selkie. Selkie. Yeah. Yeah. Like he was phenomenal last year on a team that didn't have much uh he's turned he's he went from a guy who was offense only like really really bad defensively when he broke into the league so now he's like a full-on two-way force so uh that's some interesting stuff of the new data that's coming out yeah i like that um okay one final question here um and this wasn't on the initial list that i gave to you in preparation Uh for the show but I think you'll I think you'll be fine. Uh, okay. Hampus Nyberg asks, "How will Vegas unload their surplus of defensemen? Did they flood their own market?" Yeah, I think they did. They've like even the guys that they have traded, they haven't got great value for. No, I think they. I think there was a miscalculation that happened here, and also yep. just I, I don't hate the idea in principle. I thought that the way they went about it was bizarre with the names they took on because. I just like they willingly took Lucas Pisa. It's not like <laughs> like I understand like taking on um a Clayton Stoner or whatever because you know the Ducks incentivize them to do so, but like I think they legitimately took Lucas Pisa and thought that they might get a team to bite on him. And yeah. I just think that was a miscalculation on their part. It it was a huge one and also like their decisions on defense this whole way, like the, ever since they started, have been really confusing, right? Because even the one good, or I guess they made a couple, but one of the major good decisions they made at the expansion draft was taking Nate Schmidt. Mm-hmm. And then instead of giving him the really reasonable salary that he asked for, they took him to arbitration. It's like arbitration should be the absolute worst case scenario for a player. Cause like it, it almost always does some, some level of irreparable damage to your relationship with the player. And 
Schmidt is probably Las Vegas' best defenseman. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, he was asking for, like, 2.75, which is below league average salary for a guy who's probably going to play on your first pairing. Like, dude, just sign the guy. <laughs> and then, like, you know, Alexi Emelin they didn't get much for. They got very little for David Schlemko from Montreal. Uh, I think they got maybe a second-round pick for Mark Mathot. But yeah. it seemed like they paid or they decided they were going to take all these guys who teams shouldn't value but some teams do mm. but they were like two years late you know like if yeah. they would have done this exact draft two years ago they probably would have gotten a lot more uh, value for those guys but they've kind of been exposed as defensemen who aren't very important yeah they're the list of guys they have on this on this depth chart is pretty mind-blowing yeah, it's Harrison Spiza, Stoner, John Merrill, Derek England, Griffin Reinhardt. What? 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 What did I just read? <laughs> Why Griffin Reinhardt? Like of all the guys, like uh-huh. it makes no sense. And you know, like when I looked at their team that they assembled, and I like went through all the stats for those players and kind of tried to develop like what type of team they were going to be next year, and based on the guys that they pick, like they're going to be a. Uh, very heavy grinding team that generates almost no offense. <laughs> They're yeah. very immobile, very slow. It, uh, like if you're an expansion team, like if it were me, I mean, maybe I'm naive in some way and I probably am, hmm. but if I'm trying to sell stuff in Las Vegas, you know, you're picking for the future for sure. And you're picking for trades for sure, but try to get as many exciting dynamic players as you can, even if they're not going to be, you know, first liners get guys who can do something who can wow the crowd because yeah. it is Las Vegas. You're competing with some major shows there. And I, I just wonder, like, I know that they're saying that they have a lot of season tickets sold and everything, but that's year one. Right. So if they're really boring this year and can't score and really slow and just get slaughtered every night, who's coming back next year? Well, and, and the thing is, um, like I completely agree in terms of, uh, how, what their team's going to profile like, but I would have thought that, and we knew knew that was going to be the case as soon as the, uh, you know, with all the mock drafts we did for for pretty much a full year in, in terms of knowing the expansion rules. But like, why wouldn't they take more uh, forwards who were either on good contracts or were expiring soon, like, and just put them in great opportunities to succeed in terms of like top power play. And yeah. first line, and then try to trade them while their value is high at the deadline. Like I, that's what I thought was confusing. Like I understand that the maybe the financial concerns, but like you could have done that with a Michael Camilleri and then flipped him at the deadline to some contender. And instead, they just take John Merrill, and it's like <clears> it just seems like you're just settling for just like the most conservative, bland option ever. And and I just don't see what the upside with that is. And I thought they should have taken a few more risks along that along those lines as opposed to what they did yeah I, I totally agree and you also look at like the defense as they're structured and they've got Nate Schmidt Griffin Reinhardt and Brad Hunt mm. signed next year yeah everyone else is either RFA or UFA that's that's a lot of work to do over the next calendar year like there's even at forward they've got one two three four five six uh, free agents restricted or unrestricted to work on. Uh, Calvin Pickard is a restricted free agent next year. Like they didn't exactly set themselves up to 
be able to relax at any point in the future. And I, and I feel like also George McPhee's comments about how like he didn't want to make other teams mad kind of tell you what's wrong with the NHL today is that it, there's always like uh, like nobody's going for it. You know what I mean? No. Like they they want to win, but they're not willing to sacrifice a relationship with their good buddy to do it. And that that uh, that makes the league kind of boring. Yes. No, I agree with that. Um, yeah, we'll see. I mean, they, they, they obviously loaded up on a ton of draft picks, and they had a, they came out of this year's entry draft looking good, but it's going to take a few years for any of those guys to really be impact players for them, so they got to wait for that. Um, but yeah, other than that, I uh, I think it's time for us to, uh, to sign out of here. I mean, we did a good... 80 minutes i feel like we answered a lot of questions i mean there were there, there were some other ones that as we said the listeners really came through i feel like we probably could have done another 80 minute show here but i guess we'll just save them for later and get to it maybe later on in the summer um absolutely and, andrew do you want to plug anything what are you up to these days uh these days i am working on that long-term project for sportsnet again uh that's pretty much all i'm working on right now i'm off with rds until september Hmm. and uh yeah i'll i've got the podcast going again soon i'm probably gonna be starting something up with mark dumont pretty soon as well because it's uh it's a secret i think right now but uh there's something in the works with with me and mark dumont so i'm a big mark dumont guy so i uh i support that um yeah well Listen, let's. Uh, we've already made tentative plans, but now that we put it out in the universe, we have to follow through with it. Let's do. Um, let's do that top ten series again, like we did last preseason. Once you once you release it to the world on Sportsnet.ca. Absolutely, man. You can count on me. Absolutely. Chat soon, buddy. Talk soon. The Hockey PDO Cast with Dmitri Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at dimfilipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com/slash hockeypdocast.